as we pray. Let's ask the Lord to go before us tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for this study, for just drawing our attention, Lord, to how great you are and how ready you are to listen to us, to hear our prayers, to move and to act on our behalf, Lord. And we are so thankful for that. And we pray tonight that you would minister to us out of the life of Nehemiah as we look at his prayer and the humility that he demonstrated. And I pray, Father, that we would come away with this um, desiring, Lord, just to have a humble heart before you, Father. Um, And we thank you and we praise you and just ask for your Holy Spirit to come forth and minister to each one of us that what we need, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight we're going to look at the importance of humility in prayer. Because James uh, 4.6 says that God uh, resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And who does not need grace? We all do. The definition of humble, as I looked it up, um, surprised me because it spoke a little bit more about what it's not. It says uh, to be humble is to not be proud or haughty, not arrogant, not assertive. A little easier to say what it's not. Um, but the word comes from, from a Latin word, which means low, and it's taken from the word hummus, which means earth. So that's kind of the idea of humble, and that's kind of how low we're talking here. It's not lower than someone else. You're not comparing yourselves. It's just low. And I love C.S. Lewis in a quote. He says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Yeah, it's like just thinking of others, thinking of Jesus, putting yourself on the back burner. Because, you know, we think of ourselves first. It's always me first, me, me, me. And I'm always trying to find ways to get myself to stop thinking about me. And um, we have to get our eyes off ourselves. You know, it's, it's hard, but it's, it's a job we got to do. And that's one of the wonderful things about prayer, is it takes my eyes off me and puts them on God. And this is what Nehemiah does. Um, He demonstrates humility. When he hears the plight of his people, he is so moved to go to God in prayer and to be a part of the solution. Now, Nehemiah was a Jewish exile, He was born in captivity. He had never been to Jerusalem, never been to his homeland, um, or uh, lived among the people there in in Israel. The people of Israel had gone into captivity. Uh, The Babylonians had conquered them. And God said, if you disobey me, I'm going to kick you out of the land. You're going to be punished. But if you will um, repent, then I will again... Um, bless you. And so here they are. The the children of Israel have been in captivity. um, And 70 years go by. And they're finally, after 70 years of captivity, able to go back to uh, Israel. Um, But out of the 3 million people that were there in Babylon, maybe about 50,000 people went back. So it was a very small remnant of people that went back to the land. So, like I said, Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem, Um, but he was very acquainted with their history. He was very acquainted with the God of his people. 
Um, and I just think how amazing this is that this man had a godly heritage. His mother raised him in the midst of a pagan society, and he grew to know and to love and to have a heart for God and his people. And I want to encourage every one of you moms out there that are raising children, and our society is getting more and more intolerant of Christianity. Our society is getting darker and darker, and yet you can raise your children in the Lord. You can train them up. You can teach them who God is, what God requires of their life, and the blessings they can expect if they follow God. And you can raise up uh, people like Nehemiah. So I want to look at Nehemiah's prayer from three perspectives. I want to look at, first, his um, humble attitude in verse 1 through 4, the humility of his prayer in verse 5 through 11, and his humble actions in verse 12 through 228 or 28. Let's read Nehemiah 1, 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Halkiah, it came to pass in the months of Cheslev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanai, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So we're told that these events took place in the month of Cheslev, which would be our month of December. During the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, who reigned from 464 to 423 B.C. And um, Ezra had already gone down 13 years earlier and taken a group uh, of um, the captives down into Jerusalem. But he had experienced a lot of conflict. um, And the work that he had done on the temple had to stop. And I'm pretty sure that uh, Nehemiah was wanting to hear what is going on, how are things going. He'd hoped that Nehemiah or or Ezra's work had gotten a little farther along than it did. Uh, But we find out that Nehemiah is in Shushan, the citadel, which is the capital of Persia. It was the winter palace of the Persian kings. Um, And we find out later on at the end of the chapter, Nehemiah doesn't let us know this until after you read this whole prayer, that he's the cupbearer to the king. Now, this is a very important position. It's his responsibility to serve the wine to the king, to taste his food, to make sure the king was not poisoned. And you might think, well, no thanks for that job. But really, it was a very prestigious job. He is able to be in close proximity to the king. He is um, serving in the king's court. He is dressed in courtly attire, so he is dressed nice. He had to be a handsome person just to serve the king and his court. He had to be knowledgeable in matters of the court. Uh, He converses with the king. He possibly advises the king from time to time. And I think how amazing for a Jewish captive to receive such a position, that he would be considered worthy to have that position. He must have displayed remarkable qualities. And he also because of this position, had a very comfortable lifestyle, very privileged relationship with the king. 
And I thought, what a unique position for such a desperate time for his people. Reminded me of Esther. You remember her people were about to be annihilated. And yet she was in the kingdom. She had become the king's wife because she was so beautiful. And she was asked to go in and plead for her people. And she was afraid to go. And her cousin says to her, How do you know, Esther, if you haven't come to the kingdom for such a time as this? God has placed you there. You're not beautiful so you can flaunt yourself in front of everybody and look at me. No, God made you that way to draw this king's attention to you that I might use you to be a vessel of God, to be used by him. Um, And so remember when... uh, We did our lesson on um, the Lord's Prayer and how he taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. That's what it's about, ladies, God's kingdom here on earth. Your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, And so for Esther, it's about getting God's kingdom come. For Nehemiah, it's going to be about God's kingdom. For your life, it's going to be about God's kingdom. And if you want to pray with humility... You don't pray for your kingdom, your will, your desires, me, me, me. It's not that you can't bring your needs and pour your heart out. You can. But prayer is a a place of aligning ourselves up with the will of God. And this is what we see um, in the life of Jesus. What did he say in the garden? Not my will. Yours be done. He didn't want to go to the cross. He expressed that. But he was willing. He wanted God's kingdom above all. And so God places us in our families, in our jobs, um, strategically, in your neighborhood, in the relationships that you hold, that he might use you. Lord, how would you use me in this family, with these neighbors, in this job, in these relationships you've placed in my life? How would you use me? Let me be open. I think about Nehemiah and this privileged position and how he might have just let this whole thing go to his head. He could have just not been concerned at all about what was going on in Jerusalem. That was 800 miles away. How, how much effect did it have on him? It could not have affected his lifestyle at all. Um, but he wasn't full of himself. You know, when he interacts with Hanai and the brethren and he's talking to him, it's Nehemiah that says, how are... Is everything going? How is Jerusalem? How are the people? He brought it up. He's demonstrating humility. He's not just thinking of himself. This isn't casual conversation for him. He truly wants to know what is happening. He's concerned about God's people. And when he learns that God's people were living in great distress and anxiety and in disgrace and scorn, they were just surviving His heart is torn. His heart is burdened. He can't believe it. Uh, His his eyes are on God, on God's people, not on himself. And I look at his reaction, and it just seems extreme, doesn't it? He didn't just feel bad, but he wept. He mourned. And he fasted and he prayed. This news gripped his heart. What Nehemiah didn't do was lean on his own understanding. 
He didn't stop and say, okay, so things are going bad. What can I do? Can I get a committee together? Can I send some people down there? I know. I'll call this person and that person. They're good at doing this. I'll send somebody over there. That wasn't his his way. He really demonstrated Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord. You know, don't do it yourself. Let God direct your path. And he prayed. He fasted for many days. Um, he abstained from eating. And, you know, fasting is a way to set our flesh aside that we might focus on the things of the Spirit. You know, I'm just taking away that attention I give to myself. Because let's face it, ladies, eating takes a lot of attention, doesn't it? <laughs> what should I have for lunch? And you can think about it for a while. You can look through your cupboards for a real long time and decide whatever I'm going to have, it's not here. <laughs> and, and all of that's gone when you decide to break, make a break from eating from feeding your flesh, and I'm going to spend this time in prayer and spending time with the Lord and giving him uh, more of my attention. I don't have to worry about what I'm having for lunch. I don't have to worry that my cupboard hasn't got what I want. Um, And so we fast and we pray, and that's a real key issue, fast and pray, because if you just fast, you're dieting. So you fast and you pray. And so he fasts and, and prays to God. Um, and it's because he's heard this news. This news just hit him so hard. And I know that some of you are out here, and you have had news that has hit you hard. Whether it's news of your family, your finances, your health, your marriage, and it hits you. Sometimes these issues just come into our lives in unexpected moments, and we're just hit hard. And maybe it's time to fast and pray, to seek God on how we should go forward. What would God have us to do? Psalm 138.6, Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. So when we come to him in humility, he will hear our prayers. Psalm 9, verse 12 says, He does not forget the cry of the humble. You humble yourself before God in the issues of your life. He's not going to forget that. And so let's look at Nehemiah's prayer. In verse 5, he says, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. I love how he addresses God. He addresses him with praise and worship. And he recognizes God's person, his place, his position, his power, and his faithfulness. Psalm 100 verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. And this is very reminiscent of the Lord's Prayer where he says that we are to pray, Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. It's like the condensed version of what uh, Nehemiah says here. And yet we have a little more privileged position because God is our Father. And uh, Nehemiah is calling God uh, by Lord Jehovah, that covenant relationship that he has with his people. Um, And uh, he is recognizing that God is enthroned in heaven. And I am here on earth. 
Psalm 100, verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And you know, if you know anything about sheep, they need help. They need care. They are defenseless and they are helpless. And that is how God says we are. We are his sheep, the people of of his pasture. And he is the one that's going to give us care and protection. You know, ladies, we don't have all the answers. We don't have the wisdom. We don't know the way to go. And we need God because he is aware of everything. Um, So Nehemiah addresses him, Lord God of heaven, Jehovah, the self-existent one, the becoming one. It is God who becomes what we need. Nehemiah addresses him as um, God of heaven above all. He commands the armies of heaven. He rules over all the earth. His resources are not limited to this earth. His perspective from heaven is higher than ours. He says that he will guide you with his eye. Well, his eye sees things you have no way of seeing. He knows what's around the corner. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow. He knows what's going to be next month. And we're stuck in today. We sure need that perspective, don't we? You know, sometimes a situation comes in my life, I just want to freak out. And God sees that tomorrow, that situation is going to completely be gone. Well, I don't know that because today my life is over. (laughs) And God has a perspective I don't have. I need that perspective. It's higher than mine. His thoughts are higher. His ways are higher. He's outside of time. Nothing's impossible for him. And many times situations come up and everything's impossible for me. But with God, all things are possible. Isaiah 57, 15 says, Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And the part of the verse that gets me, with him who has a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And so God who dwells on high, he is so pleased to dwell with the humble. When we humble ourselves before him, his presence is with us and he will restore us. He is also great and awesome. His power is great. He is the great God who formed everything. He provides great deliverance. He shows great mercy. Great and marvelous are his works. He has done great things, and he shows great kindness. Our God is great. Job 36, 26, Behold, God is great, and we do not know him, nor can the number of his years be discovered. You know what? You're never going to be able to discover how great your God is, but it is a good lifelong journey to discover his greatness in everything. Um, He is great and greatly to be praised. It's important that we recognize how great our God is because no matter how great my need is, I am coming to a God that is greater than all. He is greater than whatever I face, and he is able to handle anything that comes my way. He is an awesome God. We are to stand in awe of him, to be in fear and reverencing him with respect. You know what? There is none like him. Jeremiah 10.6, 
Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great, and your name is great in might. There is none like him. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it, and they are safe. That's what we have in our God. Isaiah 66, 1 through 2. The Lord said, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made. All those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on whom he who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. We stand in awe of God and we take his word into account. He looks on that. God is faithful. God keeps his word. Psalm 36.5, your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. It cannot be measured. God is faithful. Don't ever forget that because Satan is going to tell you, God can't do this for you. God isn't going to come through. God won't help you. God is faithful. What he has said, he will do. Luke 21, 33, heaven and earth will, earth will pass away, but my words will in no means pass away. God says that the word that goes forth from his mouth will not return to him void, but it will accomplish what he has sent it to, to do. We can take his, his word on it. When he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, he's faithful. When he says, your sins are forgiven, he's faithful. When he says he's going to work all things for the good, he's faithful. And when he says he won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, he is faithful. We can take him at his words. So as I focus on who God is, what he does, I'm encouraged when I come to make my request to God. You know what praising God does? It delights his heart. But he doesn't need it. The entire heavens worship God, bow down at his feet. But you know what praising God does? Acknowledging who he is, how great and marvelous his works are, it gives me confidence. I remember who I'm praying to. My God is great. There is nothing he cannot do. You know what? It brings God into focus. When I start my prayer, I've got these problems, and I've got situations that are driving me crazy, things I'm afraid of, my fears. They're right, right there. I, I can't see beyond them. Yet when I go into prayer and I say, oh, God, you are great and awesome. You are faithful. You are God in heaven. You rule over all the earth. Nothing is too hard for you. And I have this little problem, God. You see, when your God is so big, your problem gets much smaller. I love the song that Kim Hill uh, sings, Be Magnified. She says, I have made you too small in my eyes. Oh, Lord, forgive me. When I have believed in a lie that you were not able to help me. But now, oh, Lord, I see my wrong. Heal my heart, show yourself strong, and in my eyes and with my song, O Lord, be magnified. 
That's what we need to do. When we recognize and we come to God and we praise him with worship, we make God bigger than anything we face. And then we are confident when we make our request to him. In verse 6, Nehemiah goes on to say in his prayer, Please let your ear be attentive, your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants. You see, humility recognizes I must be completely dependent on God. And Nehemiah says, Lord, please be attentive to my prayer. Open your eyes. I need you. I need you in the midst of this situation and this problem. Um, He saw that God's people were helpless and they were hopeless. And there was no one to take up their cause. God, they need you. Nehemiah doesn't try to figure it out, work it out, uh, manipulate a situation for his advantage. He solely looks to God. Psalm 62.5, my soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. God is going to perfect those things that concern you. Only God can do it. Psalm 121, 1-4 says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. And how many times do we find ourselves in a desperate situation, and instead of trusting God, we're scrambling, trying to figure it out, trying to uh, change things or call people. What can this person do for me? How can that person help? What kind of advice can I get from here and from there? Um, and we forget to seek first the kingdom of God. Go to God first. We want to do it our way. Isn't that what Frank, Frank Sinatra, he's saying it? It's, it's what we are. I want to do it my way. But you know, my way doesn't work. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. I don't know what's best. I don't know what to do. I need to live dependent on God. You know, Eve gave up her dependence on God when she took a bite of that fruit, when she disobeyed God. God created us to live in dependence upon him. And when we do not, we suffer the consequences. Jesus, when he lived his earthly life, He lived it in dependence on the Father. Did he do this because he needed to? No, he did this because we needed to see how it works. He prayed before he chose the the disciples. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed when he broke bread. He prayed with the disciples. He prayed in the garden when it was the hardest for him. So we would know what to do. What does dependence look like? You look at the life of Jesus. He always did those things that pleased the Father. That's what dependence looks like. What do we call children? We call them dependents. What are we, ladies? We are the children of God. We are his dependents. We need to depend on him. Next, Nehemiah humbles himself in confessing his sins. He goes on in verse 6, And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which they have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandments, the statutes, the ordinances, 
um, that you've commanded your servant Moses. And you know, there is nothing as humbling as saying, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. They are just like some of the hardest things to get past your lips because they're humbling to us, admitting we're wrong. We don't want to be wrong, but we've got to confess our sins. Um, Humility recognizes the need to confess sin openly because honestly, ladies, secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Everything about our lives is open and naked before him to whom we must give an account. And so, you know, what's the point? Who are we fooling? Maybe ourselves. So we've got to confess our sins before God as Nehemiah. He didn't hold back. You know, I I, I relate with, maybe he didn't commit the same sins, but he's a sinful person. He recognizes that the reason they were in the situation, it was because of sin. So he confesses those sins to God. He asks for forgiveness. He doesn't make excuse for his sin. Because when you start saying, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, God, I, I, I know I did this wrong, but she did that, and it was very hard because blah, blah. That's no longer confession of sin. That is an excuse. And Vance Havner said something that I just love. He says, an excuse is a reason wrapped in a lie. And think about that for a minute. The next time you want to give an excuse of yourself to something, really think about what you're trying to say. And so we just honestly have to completely humble ourselves. Yep, I'm wrong. I have sinned. I did this. And, you know, God is gracious. There's no reason why we shouldn't come to him. You know, he so graciously forgives our sins. John, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a promise to us. We can take him. He gave us our, his word for it. Proverbs twenty eight thirteen: he who covers his sins will not prosper, but he whosoever confesses his sins and forsakes them, he'll have mercy. So you confess your sin, you repent of it, you forsake it, and you move on. Keep short accounts with God. It's the best way. So after he confesses his sin, the sin of the people, he then remembers the promises of God. And humility rests on the promises of God. It's nothing about me. It's all about God. In verse 8, he goes, He goes on to say, remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast into the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So Nehemiah is recalling to God, Uh, what he had promised in Leviticus 28 and Deuteronomy 30. And he's asking God, remember that promise that if the people would return and they would again keep his commandments, that God would bless them in their land. This is what God said he would do. Now, when we ask God to remember his promise, it's not that he's forgotten it. God does not forget his promise. He is ever mindful of it. But what does it do? When I recall God's promise, it reminds me of what God has said. 
And it builds my faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God, whether I'm reading it or quoting it, sharing it with you. God's word continually builds up my faith. And so as I pray back the promises of God, I'm encouraged. It's a blessing to me. Our hopes are placed in the promises of God. Uh, Hebrews uh, 6, 17 through 19 talk about this, that God has given us two unchangeable truths to hold on to. He's given us his word of promise and the fact that God cannot lie. Those two things. And we can go to him for refuge and hold on to this promise with confidence like an anchor of our soul. It anchors us, knowing that what God has promised us, he will keep it. It's sure. And it keeps me from being swept away from the lies of the enemy, swept away by fear, swept away by my situation, because I know what God says to me, and I hang on to that. I think about um, about uh, Jacob when he was leaving Laban's house, and he's coming back. God had told him, you come back to your family and to the land. And he says in Genesis 32, 9 through 12, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and all the truth which you've shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff. Now I've become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered in multitude. And he brings God's word back to him. And this is encouraging him. Remember, God has said this to you. You're not just thinking this on your own. These are God's words. God's word is living. It's powerful. It's not the same as when your friend gives you her opinion or your mom gives you the old wives' fables on how to take care of a problem. It's God's word. It's powerful. When, when my kids were in Japan during the tsunami and the earthquake that happened over there, I read through um, Psalm 46, and God gave that to me, and it tells us that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Uh, even though the earth were removed, and though the mountains were carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Let me tell you, if you watch the picture of that tsunami, that is what you saw. And my kids were over there with their baby daughter. Ugh. And, but he goes on in verse 5 to say, um, uh, not verse 5, in, uh, in um, 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations of the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. Be still and know that I am God. And that's what I needed to hear. And you better believe I prayed through this while I was waiting for them to return home. Because you know what? Nothing was working over there. There, You couldn't buy stuff in the store. Uh, The electricity was out. They couldn't get on the train. And God says, be still and know that I'm God. There's absolutely nothing I can do. But God is there. He's a very present help in trouble. Ladies, when God gives you a promise, when he gives you a word, you pray through it. You hang on to it. 
And you better believe when they walked through those doors at LAX, wow, I was the happiest person on earth. So hang on to those promises because God's promises are unfailing. First Kings eight fifty six. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people, Israel, according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. And you know what? Not one word will fail in your life either. It is God's word. God cannot lie. We find in first in Titus one two. And he never breaks a promise. Hebrews ten twenty three. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for it is he who promised is faithful. So humility simply states their need. Nehemiah goes on with his petition. Verse 11. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Um, so as he spent time praying, I believe the Lord put on his heart that he was to go and he was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. God was sending him. And he's asking God, when I, when I have a conversation with the king, you go before me. Please give me favor. You know, Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And so humility is ready to respond to the call of God. And that's what we see, the humble actions of Nehemiah. In chapter 2, 1 through 8, Nehemiah comes before the king. And um, it's April by now. So four months have gone by. Nehemiah prayed for four months. He didn't just pray a couple days. He fasted. He prayed for four months. That God doesn't mean he never ate in four months, but he took time to pray and fast uh, for four months. And he didn't rush into things. He waited for the right time, and that's so important. You know, we just want things instant. You know, when I go to the store and I see instant potatoes, I think, really? <laughs> we can't wait for some potatoes to cook. Uh, but that's, that's our society. But it is through faith and waiting patiently on God that we receive the promises, we're told in Hebrews 6.4. While we wait, God is working, and that's what we see. Warren Wiersbe says, when you wait on the Lord in prayer, you are not wasting your time, you're investing your time. And when we wait on the Lord, God will renew our strength. But um, Nehemiah goes to the king, and the king notices he's sad. He says, why are you sad? And Nehemiah is filled with fear um, as the king does this. And he says, well, um, you know, my face is sad because my city of my father's is lied in ruins and it's broken down. Um, and the king says, so what do you want? Well, Nehemiah, you know, he was so fearful when the king asked him. He'd been praying about this for months, this opportunity to talk to the king. And when it came up, oh, he saw that I'm sad. The king had power over his life. He could have him killed. And yet, um, we see that God had worked in the heart of the king. That time was needed. God needed to do something in the life of this man that he'd be open to this prayer. And, you know, you might be headed into a conversation like this where you're scared to death to say the things you have to say. Pray. Seek the Lord. Let him go before you. Take the time to pray. Um, ask God to give you favor. 
And you know there's a time and there's a place. You ask God to reveal both those things to you as he did to Nehemiah. And I love it because Nehemiah shoots up this quick prayer. Um, And he doesn't live on quick prayers. But he does, you know, sometimes there's no time to just stop and pray. It's like, as they're speaking to you, Lord, what do I say? Oh, God, help me. Sometimes those are our best prayers. Um, And so the king talks to him, and he says, you know, that's great. You can go um, do it. Uh, How long will you be gone? Um, And uh, when are you going to come back? And then Nehemiah just lays it all out. He says, okay, so... um, I need you to give me these letters. I need uh, some supplies. I need lumber. I need to do this. I need to do that. And um, so the, the king says, that's fine. Go ahead. You just go do what you need to do. Well, that's, that's not what he was thinking in the beginning of the four months. How am I going to tell this to this man? Well, he could do this. He could say that. Oh. And I'm sure, like all of us, he kind of worried about it for four months. But he kept praying. He just kept praying. Keep the focus back on God. And um, what would have been impossible for Nehemiah was possible for God because God sovereignly works, and he gives him favor. The timing was right. You know what? God came through again. Amazing. Like he always does. He answered Nehemiah's prayer. He answered it abundantly above what he could ask or think. And that's, ladies, what he wants to do with you. If you will simply come in full humility, full dependence, looking to him alone, he is going to answer your prayers. James 4.10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. James 5.16, confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name. Thank you so much, Father, for revealing um, yourself to us through this passage of Scripture and just how important it is, Lord, that we humble ourselves before you because you do give grace to the humble. And, Lord, we ask tonight, Lord, that you would help us, Father, in our time of prayer to recognize that you are the Lord of heaven great and awesome, and you are faithful to keep your word. Lord, may we recognize you for who you are. Lord, may we humble ourselves before you. May we live in dependence upon you. Father, just teach us to pray with a heart of humility. And Lord, have your will, have your way. Work in us what your will is, what you'd have us do. Make us obedient, Father. We thank you, we praise you, we lift this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.